In your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Yeah, could we turn some lights on so people can see their Bibles, Glenn? Thank you, sir. I don't know if, uh, if you've been having the kind of discussions in your life groups over the last week or so that we've been having in the ones that I'm a part of, but they have been absolutely wonderful. We, uh, Robin and I are part of two life groups. We do here, one here on uh, Wednesday nights at the building, and then uh, we did another one last night with uh, a different life group at our house. And uh, it was just such a blessing in both cases to have a discussion about this portion of Scripture. And it was, it was fascinating last night, actually, to listen to not just adults, but teenagers uh, uh, kind of go on and on. Like, I didn't know if they were ever going to stop uh, talking about the, the creation stories and what it is that God did in those creation stories and the ways in which God uh, built relationship with humankind. It was absolutely beautiful. Now, there's a sense in which that's a bit of a tragedy that it was so beautiful because today... I'm looking at this and thinking, there is so much in Genesis chapter 2. And I've heard that now over the last couple of weeks, just how much there is. And I feel like this morning I'm going to have to just rush through Genesis chapter 2 and there's not going to be all this beautiful discussion that we had the last couple of weeks in our group. And so for those of you who have experienced that with me, uh, just keep going through your mind those beautiful discussions we had and let that kind of... Feed off of those. Feed off of those and be blessed by them because I think uh, there's an awful lot there that has been wonderful. Now, for the rest of you, you're going to have to listen carefully because I, I, in fact, I would say this morning, like I know that all of you really listen carefully all the time, uh, but, uh, but I really, this morning, the things that I want to share, the things that are on my heart are a, a kind of especially poignant and it's, you know, it's a little bit silly to say that more than any other time, it's, it's important. But this morning, it is important. Like the things that, that come out of this chapter are important for us to get as a church, as people of God. And, uh, and in a little while, I'm going to say some things special, uh, special to the, the young people. And so I really want you to listen then too. Well, the story begins here in chapter 2 with God having given himself again to humankind in creation. And the Bible talks here about how when he had made the earth, in verse 4, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And here's what strikes me about this. Just the fact that we are, in fact, made from dust. Like our status as created beings is not much. At least not until God breathes into us the breath of life. Like, do you realize what we are without this life that he breathes into us? Again, I, I made mention of this a couple of weeks ago. You think about what a human being is according to science. Like the scientific des uh, description of human beings is not very flattering. 
You've got a whole lot of water. I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's a lot. You have some uh, amino acids. You have some proteins. And I don't know what else. But you take human beings and you describe them in that way and there just isn't much there. You can take, you know, a couple of pounds by the take, you take the water out and there's just a couple of pounds of stuff there and it's not very much. And with time, if you let it just sit there, it would go right back to where it was before. It would simply return to dust. And yet, there is this huge, I mean, the word huge doesn't even touch it difference between what it means to be a human being and what it means to be that pound or two pounds of stuff that turns to dust. And the difference is what? Like, what is the difference between an active brain that's doing stuff and causing energy to be produced and processed that makes us live and living What is the difference between this liveliness that we are and that mound of stuff? Isn't it simply the fact that God has breathed into us the breath of life? And so you take away God's breathing into us the breath of life, and what do you get? Some of you have seen the movie Dead Man Walking. Sean Penn, Susan Sarandon. Sean Penn is on death row. His days are numbered. He begins to build a relationship with Susan Sarandon. She eventually falls in love with him. But he is a guy who is condemned. He's got no hope, no future. There is nothing good that's going to come of him in the end. He is simply a dead man walking. And the fact is, is that there's a sense in which we're not dead men walking. We're instead... I like this. I wrote this myself. We're walking dust. That's what we are. We're walking dust. And without the liveliness that God provides, we're just the dust. And every human being was given life by God. And only those who experience his presence are able to be more than just walking dust. And what that means is, is that all the people that you know who don't have Jesus, all the people in your life that don't have Christ, like when you meet somebody at work, maybe somebody new, maybe somebody you've known for a long time, if they don't have Christ in their life and they don't understand what God has done for them, walking dust. That's what they are. And something different is there for you and me because of what God has done. And so we are walking dust except for God. It's important for us to see that. That God takes great care, as the verses continue, to provide humankind with what they need and even what is pleasing so that he creates beauty and goodness as he creates human beings and places them in this garden, this beautiful garden that he has created. Notice that he gives them things for food, and the Bible says that they are good for food. There are things that are there that are pleasing to humankind. They're filled with creativity and beauty. Notice that water is supplied in abundance. Streams of water come flowing up from the ground. 
The rivers of the earth are, are filled with this water that comes up from the ground. And so God is creative and the author of beauty and presenting what is beautiful and life-giving to those whom he loves. And so God has apparently created all of this beauty and been so creative in doing what he does for walking dust. Now there's some irony there. There's a problem with this. Why is it that God would create all this beautifulness in which we exist, all these wonderful things, if we're merely walking dust? And so again, there's something wonderful that's taken place as he has breathed within us the breath of life and we begin to have relationship and able to be in relationship with him. And because we are, he loves us. And when he creates something, he's not creating it just for walking dust. He's creating something for those whom he loves. Don't you love it when a child goes to school, maybe they're, uh, or maybe preschool, and the teacher wants to fill some time. And so they have the children make something for mommy on Mother's Day, or they have the child make something for daddy on Father's Day, or maybe it's something that represents Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever it is, and so they, they build this special project, or you know, usually it has something to do with glue, it has something to do with sparkle, maybe it has something to do with tongue depressors, it's a piece of construction paper, there's Crayola involved, uh, maybe some watercolor, and so you take what is essentially some scraps, and you make out of these scraps a project. And the child brings the project to the parents and says, look what I have brought you. And the parents look at the glue and the glitter and the tongue depressor and the piece of construction paper. And what do they do? They think it's wonderful. Their child has brought them this precious gift. And isn't it the case that God creates something and it becomes something beautiful? as he breathes into it the gift of life. And it was just dust, but it's certainly not dust now. And those are the most beautiful tongue depressors the world has ever seen because of what goes into that creation and how wonderful that is. Something changes, something gets transformed about all of those very insignificant elements put together in such a beautiful way, and God has done that. And then he does that by providing us this beautiful place in which to live and exist. So he gives us this garden and gives us the things that we need. But it goes so far beyond just the things that we need because it is filled with beauty. And then as the text goes on, not only are we in this garden, this beautiful place existing there, but he says that he gives us purpose and responsibility in this garden. And there's therefore in that meaningfulness. Like we don't just go into the garden and sit around and do nothing. But instead he says, I want you to care for this. I want you to take care of this. And he gives us a responsibility. And that responsibility gives us purpose. It's not just toil. Now it's interesting, after the fall, which we're going to see after chapter 3, what happens to working with these things that God has given us? All of a sudden, in response to the fall of humankind and Satan and his impact on humankind, God has to say things like, and now you will work 
for those things that you will eat. And it will be by the sweat of your brow. And most of us, when we think about work, we don't rejoice with that. We don't think, yes, I get to go to work. I get to sweat. I'm going to get dirty. Where's Mark Desi? Mark, you just got off work. Mark spent all night working, wants to come to be with us on Sunday morning. And so even though he worked all night long, he comes here, he's dirty and he's filthy. Is that fair to say? Is that unkind? No, that's just accurate. Okay. So Mark worked all night. He comes here. He is sweated on his brow. Something has taken place here in terms of his work. Well, this is a completely different description than what's in chapter 2. He doesn't describe our work here as being by the sweat of your brow and something you don't want to do. Instead, he said this is meaningful. He has given us a purpose here in the very beginning. We're the ones who distort it in chapter 3 and make it something other than what it is. But in the beginning, this is simply God providing purpose for us because he loves us. Well, the story goes on. The Bible says here that it's not good for man to be alone. And so, of course, God is there, but God recognizes that there's value in human community. And if we're made in his image, it makes sense that we would long for community of like kind, just like God has community within himself in like kind. And so he shares in that. He wants us to be able to share in that. And so he realizes very shortly that the animals are not going to work as the perfect companions. He gives them to us, and it's wonderful He gives humankind a chance to name them, actually, and they, in the process of naming them, this is interesting, in naming the animals, you know, in the ancient world, when you named something, it gave you dominion over that which you named. And so in giving the animals, God actually gives to humankind the the dominion over the rest of the earth and the dominion over the animals. But very quickly, he realizes this is not going to work. This is not a perfect plan. And so God's final act in this chapter, in this story, is to give humankind companionship. This is interesting. You know, uh, I grew up as a Catholic. And I wasn't uh, a strong Catholic or anything. My family wasn't strongly Catholic, but I did go. And I did go to catechism, and I had my first communion, and I learned lots of things about Catholicism. One of the things that I learned were that there were sacraments. In the Catholic Church, there's seven of them. We tend to not have sacraments, but really we have two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in fact, our view of baptism is very sacramental, very much like the Catholic's view. Well, they have seven sacraments, and one of those, interestingly enough, is marriage. And we tend to shy away from that and frown on the notion of the sacrament of marriage, and I get that. But it's pretty clear to me that as God creates woman here and creates this relationship, that there is something sacred being created because God is the one who's involved in this relationship. God designs it. God plans for it. There is godly intentionality with the marriage relationship. And so that makes me think that there is something holy and sacred going on here. Notice that the woman comes right out of the midst of the man. We always talk about, well, she didn't come from his head. She didn't come from some other part. She comes from his side so that she can walk alongside him and be with him. But she indeed comes right out of the very heart of him. In our society today, we talk a lot about the equality of women with men. 
Is there a stronger affirmation anywhere of the equality of men and women than this passage that says that she came right out of the midst of who he is? God then provides ultimate relationship here by not only creating this woman who has special relationship with man, but by also creating family. The Bible says that the man and woman become one flesh, which certainly is a reference to their unity, but it's more than that. It's also a reference to them eventually producing children because when they become one flesh, they become one sexually as well. It's kind of implied. And so it makes total sense that we as Christians would hold up family values and hold up family itself and hold up the beauty of children in relationship. I'm not saying that couples who don't have children are somehow not fulfilling God's vision for what it means to be a family, but it's clear to me that God has this beautiful picture of what he wants family to be. And so becoming one flesh is an allusion to the whole thing of what it means to be family. And I wanted to make a comment, by the way, um, about this in light of that comment about family. You and I here, in fact, I've got to be careful because I want to be able to read this and make sure I make my comments quite clear. You and I hear all the time about the world's stance on homosexuality and the comparison that there is between homosexuality and biblical standards, scriptural teaching about relationships. And when I think about this passage and what this means, it seems obvious to me that God had intention that the relationship, this special relationship that he would create would be between a man and a woman and that that man-woman relationship would constitute marriage. Now, I recently read of a preacher in Red, in Red Deer who made some comments similar to those, and he was taken to court. And he was charged for discriminating against homosexuals. And I don't want to be discriminatory this morning. Like, I'm absolutely convinced that God loves homosexuals. I think that God cares for homosexuals as much as he cares for you and me. I don't have a doubt about that. But I also am convinced that this relationship that God has created is a relationship between a man and a woman. And that the oneness of flesh formed between a man and a woman indicates that in general, the marriage relationship, when man and woman oriented, is family oriented, including the procreation of the species. In other words, including children. And so if that's God's design, that two people would come together and form a family and then have children and procreate and the species would continue, if that's his design, then I find it very strange that people would call the homosexual relationship somehow equivalent to that. It's not. Defining marriage then in a way other than the male and female special creation kind of relationship and the bond that they form including the sacred gift of children in this relationship. To define it in any other terms, such as so often done in same-gender relationships, seems to me to be out of step from the very beginning with God's design. 
He seemed to be doing something else with human people, with human beings. And by the way, I fully recognize that many people are tempted toward homosexuality and have homosexual feelings and desires. Like that's a reality. It's not to be denied, I don't think. The fact is, is that I have ungodly desires frequently in my life. And so do you. Now, my desires are not along the homosexual lines. Just to make that clear. But nonetheless, I'm tempted to sin. You're tempted to sin. Homosexuals are tempted to sin. And to carry out a lifestyle that seems to be the antithesis of what God intends for human beings in terms of that special relationship. But we have a responsibility, they have a responsibility, to live and to act in accordance with God's design for creation. Whether it's clinging to your one wife and upholding and protecting that relationship, or clinging to heterosexuality as God's design. We have a responsibility to cling to God's design. And I want to say this especially to the young people that are here this morning. And Peter and I have this discussion quite often. Where are our teens at? Where are our kids at? What are they thinking? And it's very common for us to talk about even this subject. What are they thinking about this subject? Well, you young people have grown up in a culture that consistently tells you that we Christians are wrong about homosexuality. That God is wrong in what he says about scripture uh, with reference to homosexuality. That a homosexual relationship is legitimate and beautiful. Well, you won't find in the Christian faith any support whatsoever for sanctioning or defending a homosexual lifestyle. Make no mistake, God absolutely loves those who have homosexual desires. But he created human beings for certain kinds of relationships, including monogamous relationships and heterosexual relationships. Nothing is more natural than the creative act and the relationship that brings forth children and produces families, which is perfectly in line with God's creation of the male-female relationship. But the homosexual relationship is not beautiful in that way. It's not life-giving. It's not procreative in the way that God designed marriage. I have no doubt, but the same gender couples can feel emotional attachment to each other. I know that happens. But beauty is defined by God, not us. Like when I ask the question about what's beautiful, what is wholesome, what is good, what is life-giving, I can't, I can't go to the world and ask them to give me a definition of what is beautiful and what is life-giving and what is wholesome. Instead, I want to go to Scripture. I want to ask, what does God think of this? How did God create human beings? And the ways in which God created human beings is for a male-female relationship and nothing more. That's how he defines beauty. Now, it doesn't surprise me that human beings would choose to go another route. We're dust. We're dust. What we choose often is not going to be the beautiful, lovely thing. 
But because God defines beauty and love, we need to go his route. Our tendency ever since the fall of humankind, which we're going to get to next week, is to distort what is beautiful and lovely and to rebel and to move toward death. And I, my own opinion is that the homosexual choice is simply a movement in that direction. It's a movement in the direction, ultimately, of death. Now, a comment about the trees. And it was so interesting. This came up in our life group last night. People wanted to know, what are the trees all about? Why did God create the trees? What are they there for? They have to be, I think, gracious. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good of evil have to be gifts by God, which are gracious and loving. Breathing in the breath of life and created humankind as image, that's a gracious act. Giving us good food to eat and create a variety of beautiful vegetation is a gracious act. Supplying an abundance of water is a gracious act. Placing humankind in the garden with the task of caring for it, working with purpose is a gracious act. Recognizing that humankind needs like relationships and creating them is a gracious act. Supplying the animals to populate the earth, that's a gracious act. God has graciously given to humankind even dominion. Creating companionship in the woman, creating a special relationship for them to share and create families, including the progeny that come from this relationship. All of that is a gracious act. It makes sense to me then that even the trees of life and the knowledge of good and evil, which ultimately cause big problems, including the command to not eat from them, is also an act of God's grace. And so in every case, the gracious acts of God support ultimately his relationship with us. And this is what God wants. He wants to build relationship. And so he builds two people and says, relationship. And he builds us and with him he says, relationship. When he puts the trees there, it's all about actually relationship. And I'm convinced that if we do right by the trees, we're going to enhance that relationship. If we eat the trees when we shouldn't, something's going to happen to that relationship. And indeed, in the next chapter, it does. And so God is ultimately about fruitful, good, wholesome, precious relationship. And longs more than anything to be in relationship with you and me And that's why we are created. And the story so beautifully tells us about God giving himself to us in relationship like that. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that there are are insights this morning into your word that we've received that will just propagate themselves. We want to continue to see the, the depth of our relationship with you grow. And, and that happens, God, when we understand you better. And so we've tried to understand you this morning and what you're doing. Fill us with understanding. Help us to see. And even the things that we may not understand, help us somehow to see in them also your goodness and your choices and your desire for relationship. 
define those relationships for us, God. Don't let the world do that. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.